0: Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Will you pray with me? Father, we we pause to thank you for your word We thank you for the ways in which the, the coming of Jesus Christ was recorded, for our encouragement and for our instruction. And I pray that today as we explore the, the human nature of Jesus Christ and all that that means for us as fellow human beings, God, I pray that you would just give your, give your spirit to us that we might see the encouragement that this is and the necessity. The necessity of a fully human savior for fully human beings come. So Lord, would you you give us wisdom and insight into this text and into this reality of the human nature of your son? And God, would you help us to see the humility of Jesus to come down from heaven, to take on flesh in order to take our place? God, would you help us to see and have a reverence for his humility that creates humility in our own hearts as well? Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and and help us to to see Jesus more clearly today? It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. Well, this Wednesday, my daughter, Margot turns five years old. Uh, Yeah, super excited for it. Yeah. Thank you. I've kept her alive for five years. Thank you. Feels like that was applause for me and Courtney. So... um, and I, I'm very excited. It's, it's strange to think that I'll have a five-year-old. We also have a two-year-old son. But because she's our firstborn, uh, this time of year for her birthday, we're, uh, I always kind of go back to those moments in which I first met Margot, And that experience is a joyful one and also a stressful one. Uh, so, uh, joyful is easy to explain, and in fact, I don't really have to explain it. It was a wonderful thing to meet my daughter for the first time. We were so excited. I was actually one of those guys who wanted to have a daughter first. I know a lot of people were like, I want a son, no, I wanted to be a girl dad, and being a girl dad is the best thing in the world. Um, and so I was excited to meet Margot. it was such a, a sweet time. I actually have a picture here, it's one of my favorite pictures in the world. Yeah, so that's Margot. If you don't know, that's my hand right there, the big one, um, and she's grasping onto my little finger, and that was the moment of joy. That, uh, seeing her just grasp on so tight to a dad that she didn't know uh, gave me so much joy, but it was also a time of extreme anxiety. Uh, I believe I have a picture of that as well. Yes. <laughs> So this picture is time-stamped at 5.03 a.m. on December 18th, 2017. So the morning after we had Margot. And so something to know is we had Margot at a birthing center, which means that within a matter of hours after she came out, uh, we were home with her. Um, and it was, it was a terrifying thing. That is me at 5.03 a.m. because I was so stressed out and anxious. I, I didn't sleep at all that night. Not because Margo didn't sleep, she slept very well, but because I was so anxious about the fragile little human being. You can take the picture down now. It's a little <laughs> embarrassing. I was so anxious about the fragile human being that was there in our house. And, and I remember just hours into her sleeping, I, you know, I was out in the living room watching TV, like just trying to stay awake. Uh, and I heard her kind of, gut- I don't know what the sound is. It was kind of a guttural sound from her throat. And I like run over there. I'm like, what's wrong with her? And uh, come to find out there was just some acid reflux that happens to babies, which no one ever told me. It just sounded like my daughter was choking three hours into life. And so I was, I was anxious that night. And I was anxious because Newborn babies are incredibly fragile. They're the most fragile among us. There's there's nothing more vulnerable than a newborn baby. And Christmas, Advent, is that strange time of year in which we celebrate one of the most shocking statements you can make, that God came to earth as one of these frail, fragile little babies, That the eternal was given a time of birth, that the omnipotent had to learn to hold his own head up, the bread of life looking for a mother's milk. This is shocking. Advent is this wonderful time where we celebrate the humility of God to come and embrace vulnerability and frailty and fragility. So we're, we're in a series right now entitled Advent Lessons, and, and throughout this Advent series, we've been revisiting some of the key aspects of how Jesus came into the world and simply asking, what's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal? The, the story of Christmas has been subjected to such sentimentality that if we don't recapture some of the depth and meaning behind it, we're bound to just miss what God is showing us in the coming of Christ. So we're revisiting some of these aspects of the story. And the one I want to revisit today for this week is the human nature of Jesus, the humanity of Christ that he took on frailty and vulnerability. Next week, we'll get into the divinity of Christ. But first, this week, we have to explore why is it critical that Jesus is a real human being, like a real human being, not mostly human, not, not pretty human, but fully human, human. Let's start with the text. So this, uh, this text that we're in, in in Luke two is the closing of Luke's narrative on Jesus's birth and early life. And, and so far in Luke's gospel, he has covered two miraculous births, right? The birth of John the Baptist to a barren woman and the birth of Jesus Christ to a virgin. And so far in this point of the story, Jesus has been born, angels have lit up the sky with song and shepherds have come with their gifts. And here, In the last section of Luke's nativity narrative, Jesus and his family make a little trek up to Jerusalem for what's called the Feast of the Passover. Now there there were usually three feasts that the Jewish people would traditionally observe by making a trip to Jerusalem, the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. But at this time, it was mostly just customary to choose the most important one, which was this one, the Feast of the Passover. And and, and at this time, both husband and wife would make the trek, and usually children under the age of 12 would stay back, and that's because it wasn't until age 12 that children began the preparation to be accepted into the religious community of Jewish life. And so as you saw from our text, Jesus is 12 at this point, and so he goes with his family up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover and begin preparation to join the community's religious life. Jesus is walking in what is the normal, customary Jewish practices. All of this is tradition. All of this is what a normal Jewish person would do at this time. And and the thing I want you to notice is that Jesus did not exempt himself from any of that practice. Jesus, the, the one who was God in the flesh, waited until age 12 to enter the religious community because that was the custom and the tradition. I mean, it's clear in, in this text that at this point in his life, the boy Jesus has some recognition of who he is. If you heard the text, after his parents rebuke him for making them worry about him, he mentions needing to be in his father's house, which is the temple. So Jesus recognizes already at age 12 that he is in fact the divine son of God. Meaning this, He has a recognition that the feast of the Passover, that all of these people are coming to celebrate and that he is partaking in, he knows it's really about what he, as God the Son, had done centuries before for the Jewish people in Egypt. And yet he doesn't exempt himself from that. He's the point of the feast and the celebration, and yet as was custom and tradition, he waits until age 12 to actually participate in the religious community, because that was the custom and the tradition. Listen, here, here's what's being shown here, that, that Jesus lived as a normal practicing Jew who placed himself under the normal customs of the religious community and law. Now, why, why is this such a big deal? Why, why am I picking this up so much out of the text? It's, it's a big deal because of what the Apostle Paul points out in Galatians 4, four through five. He, he says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so so Paul here says that the importance of Jesus placing himself under the normal customary practices of the Jewish community is shown by what he says. Jesus did that so that he could redeem those who were under the law. Jesus placed himself under the customs and traditions of the Jewish people so that he could redeem the Jewish people. He did not live as an exception, otherwise he could not redeem those who were not exceptions. Friends, all of this is meant to make one great point. This is an example of the principle that we need to hear today. The redemption Jesus brings can only extend as far as his experience. The redemption Jesus brings can only extend as far as his experience. Jesus can only be the redemption for what he takes on in himself. And again, an example of this is how he placed himself under the law. He did not exempt him from it. He placed himself under it so that he can redeem those under the law. The principle is this. The redemption Jesus brings is only available because he functions as a representative of human beings in all aspects. And there is no representation without likeness, without being, an actual human being. Jesus's redemption comes through representation and there is no representation without likeness, right? I mean, we, we understand this. Can you imagine that your representative in Congress was someone from Louisville, Kentucky right now? Can you imagine the chaos of that? Can you imagine a New York City, New York City senator representing the needs and interests of those in Louisville, Kentucky? Would that do well for our great union? No. <laughs> And that's because we know representation requires some form of likeness to, in that example, the likeness of interests and desires, but the same is true here for the human nature of Jesus. To be our redemptive representative, he must be one of us. He must be a human being. He can't just drop down from the sky, all of a sudden die on the cross and not really be a human being. That wouldn't save us. He has to be a full human being, not mostly one of us, but fully one of us. There is no redemption without representation, and there is no representation without likeness. And, and the church has settled on this needed humanity of Christ for, for thousands of years. This is one of those things that is rooted in the history of the church. So, so one of my favorite periods in church history is early church history, If you go through and read the first 400 to 500 years of church history, you see that it was filled with a lot of debate. The church was was seeking to interpret scripture faithfully and and come to a conclusion around what the scriptures lay out as orthodox doctrine. And one of those debates was around this topic, the human nature of Jesus Christ. And very early on, the the church battled a heresy, a (laughs) Harry, maybe his name was Harry, no, his name was not Harry, uh, a heresy called doceticism. And, and doceticism said that Jesus was, was fully God, but he was not really a human, that he was more kind of a, a phantom, that he was God and he kind of took on the, the form that we would see as a human, but he wasn't really a human. And that was, that was quickly dismissed in church history. Jesus is not a divine phantom, but was actually human. But, but then a, a couple hundred years later, another heresy popped up called Apollinarianism. And, and Apollinarius was the bishop of Laodicea in 362, and while he believed that Jesus was human, he did not believe that Jesus was fully human. He, he believed that Jesus was mostly human, that he had a human body and a human soul, but because he was so, uh, so influenced by Greek philosophy, he did not believe that Jesus had a, had a mind, had a human mind. He believed that Jesus had had a divine mind that consumed and overtook his human mind. And that's a big problem. Because again, representation matters, likeness matters. If Jesus didn't have a human mind, how can he redeem us who have human minds? This is a big deal and the church debated debated until the Council of Constantinople in 381 where the Archbishop Gregory of Nazianzus says this. This is a great line. For that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him. Whatever Jesus has not assumed, whatever Jesus has not taken on to himself as a human being, he cannot heal, he cannot redeem Let me say it to to you this way. A mostly human Jesus is useless to you. A mostly human Jesus is useless to you. Now, Jesus does not have a sinful nature. We know that. That's the one thing not in common. And that's because sinful nature is actually unnatural to the original human condition that God made us in. But everything else he has and must have. And this is encouraging for us as real human beings because is there some aspect of your humanity that you're bothered by most, (laughs) that you're discouraged by? Maybe it's the corruption of your desires. Maybe your desires deep down feel corrupted and bent away from God and bent away from what is good. Well, Jesus in his pure desire and his living a holy life is able to represent you and redeem you in that corruption. Maybe it's your mind. Maybe that you, you, have a, you have a hard time fighting your mind. Well, Jesus had a mind and is able to redeem those with minds. <laughs> Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus experience real temptation. We see, him, we see him hunger, thirst, grief. We see him experience relational strain, betrayal, suffering. He takes it all on that he might then represent us on the cross as a real human being who there takes on the one thing we have and he didn't, sin. Jesus must be fully human to save us. Jesus takes on every part of us that he might redeem every part of us. A fully human Jesus for a fully human redemption. Now that's, that's the main reason why it's critical that Jesus is an actual human being. That's why we have to have this in order to really celebrate Christmas well. But there are are a couple conclusions that need to also be drawn from the human nature of Christ that not only encourage us with a full redemption, but can actually teach us something important about being human. The humanity of Christ encourages us in our redemption, but it also teaches us how to be human, and that through two main lessons. And and the first lesson that this shows us, I want to set up by asking a question. Did Jesus have any special advantages being a human being? What do you think? Well, don't answer because your answer might be wrong. I don't want to embarrass you. (laughs) Did Jesus have any special advantages by becoming a human being? I mean, come on. Yeah, he's fully human, but he's got that whole fully divine thing, right? (laughs) So he probably glided through life a little bit easier than we do. Because he was God, maybe being human came easier to him. Maybe the prepubescent Jesus didn't have his voice cracked because, you know, he spoke all things into existence, right? And he was a carpenter, and they, and they say measure twice, cut once, but Jesus probably never had to measure, right? Because he hung the stars and measured the ocean shores. Did Jesus have any special advantage more than we do? Well, the, the answer to that is, is a hard no. Look, look down at the end of our text in, in verses 51 through 52, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, now one thing this shows us is the necessity of growth that Jesus had. As a fully human person, he did not come with the preset settings of a fully functional human being, right? Right? He came with the factory settings, meaning that he had to experience the necessity of growth just like we do. But what was that growth like? Well, well, you see that word there, increase, right? Other translations say advance. Well, the Greek word there is prokopto. Can you say that with me? Prokopto. That was so weak. Say (laughs) prokopto. Prokopto. Now, prokopto is the word advance, but it's used only in select Instances Most most times you'll see the word prokopto whenever the context is some form of difficulty. Within its original definition, prokopto quite literally means to make one's way to increase or advance by chopping away obstacles. Prokopto gives the picture of of chopping through a a dense forest, making your way past obstacles that are difficult to make your way through. Which means this. What Luke just told us is that when Jesus advanced in wisdom and in stature and in favor, he did so with the same level of difficulty you and I have. The, the maturation of Jesus was not a downhill slide for him. He didn't cut through that need to grow like we do when you get the scissors on the wrapping paper, right? You know what I mean? You hit it just right and it. Sk- that wasn't the growth path of Jesus. It was difficult, he had to chop through obstacles. Jesus had the necessity of growth that we have and he also had the experience of growth's difficulty that we have. Now here's the lesson I want you to see in this. God did not think it too low of him to become a human and he also didn't think it too low of him to go through the same limitations, the same obstacles and constraints that we have. Human beings have constraints and limitations that affect the pace at which we can grow. And the son of God here is shown to embrace those same limitations and constraints. Here it is. Not only did God choose to be human, he also chose to not be superhuman. He gave himself to the limitations of being a human being. And friends that tells us something about the goodness of being a normal human. That if it's not too low of God to embrace the constraints and limitations of a normal human being, why do we live otherwise? God becoming human rebukes our desire to be superhuman. It's God's way of saying that to be a human is a good thing, (laughs) including the limitations and restraints that come along with that. Friend, the lesson is this. Do you live contrary to that? Do you live contrary to that? Because we live in a culture that at every turn emphasizes your potential while downplaying your limits, if not outright denying them. Do you praise your potential but mute all of your limitations? So, so in, the, in the culture of work here in Seattle, they're, they're sold to you the never-ending potential of the rat race, right? There, there is always that next promotion which offers that next pay bump into the higher tax status. And I know, friends, that the toll that this is taking on you personally. I know the temptation in Seattle is to become a devout follower of careerism and workaholism, And this isn't even a rebuke to you, but an invitation with a tinge of warning. An invitation to recognize that you are more than a cog in the machine and that your career is meant to have more significance than just being the tool by which you achieve your greatest financial dreams. There is a temptation to go past your limits, to deny them, to derive them, in order to accomplish what you think you need to accomplish. Or maybe what others think you need to accomplish. And the warning is this. To embrace the potential of work, the potential of what you can accomplish while denying your limits is to live a lie. We are limited creatures and to live contrary to that is something that deforms our humanity into something that won't bring health. God becoming human rebukes our desire to be superhuman and work is just an example of that. It's just an easy example, but the lesson is this. The son of God willingly taking on the limits of being a human being tells us something of the goodness of being a limited human being. It's almost a reversal of the Garden of Eden, right? The human being said, I want more. It would be better if I had more. And then here, God says, no, it's good to just be a human. What a rebuke to our our derision of limitations and constraints, God willingly took on humanity, which means we should stop trying to escape it. Now, now quickly, there's, there's one more lesson that the humanity of Jesus teaches. God taking on humanity dignifies the, the limits that we have as humans, right? But that reality also dignifies, friends, our own physical bodies, now, now, we as human beings, we, we already possess an intrinsic dignity, right? That, that we are made in the image of God, and because of that, every man, woman, and child across the globe possesses dignity that is inherent and undeniable. This dignity is, is not just a dignity of the soul or spirit. It's actually a dignity of the body as well. Our bodies are not just sacks of skin that carry some spirit inside of us. We are body and soul. And so the image of God that we have in dignity includes our body as much as our soul. We already have that. But the incarnation of Christ, God taking on humanity, friends, it brings even more dignity to the human body. I mean, consider this. Jesus right now still has a human body. Right now, the the gospels end with Jesus ascending into the clouds in order to take his rightful place at the right hand of God, sitting on the throne. And in that ascension, he didn't shed his physical body, but he still has it. Which means right now, the one sitting sitting on the throne of the universe, ruling over all things and overseeing all things, is a human being with a human body. That, my friends, brings a dignity to the human body (laughs) that what you have right here is in common with the one sitting on the throne. That brings dignity that we have something in common with God. It dignifies our physical body. So the, the early church father and monk, John of Damascus, said it this way. Because of the incarnation, I salute all matter with reverence. And today, friends, if there's any matter that we tend to not salute with reverence, it's our physical bodies. We have no dignity for the body. Our culture is awash with the degradation of the body. In gluttony, which is my personal besetting sin, we bypass the body, the dignity of our bodies, by hijacking our brain chemicals through comfort food at the cost of our physical health. Or in transgenderism, we bypass the dignity of our body as a truth teller and irreverently reshape it to please our Gnostic psychology. Or in gun violence, where our paranoid obsession with self-protection doesn't seem to even flinch at the bodies of school children. Or in pornography, we use the bodies of others no matter the psychosis, abuse, or addiction that that other body has to endure as long as we can take the edge off. We have no dignity for the human body. And the incarnation is meant to rebuke us in that and show us the dignity of it. Or how about this one, friends? Body image. How many of us reverently extol what stares back at us in the mirror? And I'm not just talking to ladies, I'm talking to men as well. I know from personal experience and from friendships with other men, you men struggle with body image in more ways than you wanna admit. We don't dignify our human body. Very few of us look back at that mirror and say, that's good. And the reason for that is not always because we wanna be healthy, but because we want to be and look like something else for our own ego or for our own insecurity. We degrade our bodies with sighs of frustration and derision. Friends, maybe one of the most accessible things to learn from the incarnation of the Son of God is that the human body is a good thing which means for us in our pursuit of health, it's out of reverence, not insecurity. That means that our workout sessions are no longer pursuits of vengeance against a body that won't look like what we want it to look like, but is rather a pursuit of reverence. Because of the incarnation, we salute all matter with reverence, including the matter staring back at us in the mirror. Do you see the depth of the humanity of Christ? That your redemption is guaranteed as a human being. That the body is dignified. (laughs) That the limits you run up against each and every week are said to be a good thing. The depth of the humanity of Christ. But friends, we know that the depth of the humanity of Christ at its deepest and at its most encouraging is exactly what I started with. With the redemption of our souls. The redemption of our bodies that Christ would represent us, that Christ would humble himself and take on human form, take on human flesh in order to save us. That's the mystery and wonder of this season, the upside downness of it. And when we see the depth of that, our hearts can really wonder. Let let, let, let me close with this quote by Augustine. and just let your heart take in the wonder of this. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that healer might be wounded, that life might die." Friends, this is our hope, that God became man in order to lead us into life. Let's pray. Father, we we are so grateful that, that your son did not think it too low of him to take on human flesh. God, we we praise you for your your wisdom and brilliance in redemption, knowing that in order to save human beings, a a human being must represent us. What brilliance and insight you have into the means and accomplishment of our redemption. We praise you for it. God, we praise you for what the incarnation of Jesus says about us as human beings, the ways that it teaches us how to be human, living in our constraints and living with reverence for these physical bodies that you've given us. So God, would you help us to see the depth, the depth of your son, fully human, that we might have a full redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church.